okay? Good morning. Good morning and welcome to today's lecture on politics and government of Germany. Um, the topic of our lecture today will be the social market economy, uh, which is the name under which the economic system of the Federal Republic has come to be known. But before I start explaining to you what it is about the social market economy, let me take you back some 50 odd years to demonstrate to you how the assessment of the German economy has changed over time. On the 18th of October 1952, the British weekly The Economist published a survey on the performance of the West German economy since the Second World War. Its general message was plain, unconditional acknowledgement of a wholly unexpected economic recovery, the so-called German economic miracle, and warm praise for the sound economic policies that had brought it about. 14 years later, in October 1966, the same magazine carried another survey of this type under the headline, The German Lesson, in which the acknowledgement and praise of 1952 had become a quite enthusiastic, although not uncritical, celebration of the virtues of an export-led um, economy, German style, with its excellent industrial relations and its reasonable macroeconomic policies. For all its occasional caveats, West Germany appeared as a, as a shining counter model to the Britain of the day, with its economy inflicted by sclerotic diseases and maltreated by economic stop and go shocks. Again, 20 years later, in May 1988, another survey in The Economist painted a quite different picture of the, as the title was, Wunderkind at 40. The front cover showed a fat, middle-aged man, unmistakably German in appearance, and the article conveyed the picture of a rich, saturated, and stodgy economy with not much zeal for growth and not enough flexibility for structural change left over from the days of its youth. The prospects for the future were painted in somewhat gloomy colors, and there was no talk anymore of an enviable German model. A little more than four years ago, in December 2002, a country survey in The Economist described Germany as an uncertain giant, quote, plagued by severe economic malaise. But it also acknowledged, and I quote again, for quality of life and protection of the weak, this country remains at the top of the league. Its welfare system is enviably generous its environmental and health standards are high. If compromise and consensus slow down growth but deliver civil serenity, then let us, say many Germans, pay the price." End of quote. In August 2005, The Economist's cover showed a German eagle with flexed muscles and the headline read, Germany's surprising economy. The accompanying story talked of Germany's excellent export performance and of the cost-cutting successes 
its firms had achieved in the preceding years. And just a year ago, in February 2006, yet another country survey in The Economist described Germany again in more cautious terms as waiting for a wonder, painting Germany's future in dark colors again. You may remember from my lecture in third week that I then said that Germany in the 20th century was, in a way, extreme variations on a theme. Back then I referred to the wild gyrations in the political fate of Germany, but as you see, the same extreme variation is also present with respect to economic issues, and not just in the assessment of British journalists, as you saw, although their impartiality is, of course, beyond any doubt. Having become a major industrial power in just a few decades in the 19th century, the German economy was plunged into utter chaos after the First World War, when hyperinflation reached an annual rate of 2 billion percent in 1923, that's two times 10 raised to the power of 12, and the whole country literally drowned in a flood of banknotes spat out by 2,000 printing presses working around the clock. Mass unemployment in the early 1930s resulted in the electoral success of the Nazi party, whose dictatorship brought an economic upswing in the 1930s, but ultimately resulted in complete breakdown uh, after the Second World War, which again was followed by the oft-quoted economic miracle of the 1950s and 1960s. Today, the situation is contested. Some regard Germany as the sick man of Europe, with high unemployment and very modest growth performance, while others point to the fact that it is still home to the strongest economy in Europe and that its gross domestic product per head, a measure of productivity, still surpasses that of Britain or France in spite of the massive shock of and cost since German <coughs> unification some uh, 17 years ago. However you may judge the merits of either case, I primar primarily want to draw your attention to the parallelity of political and economic fates in Germany. Because of it, economic developments have particularly been at the center of attention in the Federal Republic and have perhaps been watched with greater interest than in other countries. Based on historic experience, it was feared that democracy might be endangered again if economic problems were to occur. Indeed, during the first decades of the Federal Republic's existence, it was sometimes doubted whether Germany's democracy was really a stable one, or whether it was merely a fair-weather democracy that would crumble in the face of economic adversity. These fears were particularly pronounced uh, when in 1966 and 67, West Germany encountered its first serious recession. The rate of unemployment, which had been at about 1% since 1960, rose to 2.1%, and that was accompanied by an increase in support for the National Democratic Party, a right-wing extremist party that managed to cross the 5% hurdle in a number of regional elections and thus gained entry into six Landtage until April 1968. 
In Germany, but even more so abroad, this was taken as an alarming signal and it was feared that National Socialism might be on the rise again. It was only when the NPD failed to get into Parliament at the Bundestag election of 1969, where it received no more than 4.3% of the votes, and Germany managed to get through the economically very difficult 1970s without any political destabilization, that these fears were ultimately laid to rest, and it became clear that the apparent link between economic problems translating into political problems had been broken. Now, what is so special about the social market economy? And in how far is it distinct from other types of market economies? Let me briefly summarize some characteristics and I will come back to a fuller account in, uh, later in the lecture. Generally, one might say that the German model, as it has often been called, is characterized by comparative steadiness. When other national economies, for example in the UK and in France, embraced state intervention strongly under the economic doctrine of Keynesianism in the 1950s and 1960s, the German concept of economic policy was less in favor of state intervention than was then the fashion. Conversely, when everybody else seemed to embrace the doctrine of the free market, unencumbered by state regulation and intervention from the late 1970s onwards throughout the 1980s and 90s, which is linked in public memory uh, with such concepts as Thatcherism and Reaganomics, the German concept still seemed to see a positive role for the state in economic management, which again seemed to be out of step with the latest fashion. Now that is not to say that German economic policy and the German economy have not changed over the last 50 or so years. They certainly have. But compared to many other countries' concepts, the German cause is one characterized by greater stability and less radical change. It has, in a way, always tried to steer a third way between more or less complete laissez-faire in economic policy on the one hand and strong state interventionism in day-to-day -day economic management on the other hand. <coughs> Much of that is strongly influenced by specific German historical experiences to which I will come back in a minute. But it is not just the concept that sets the German model apart from others. Just as much the German economy developed a specific profile in terms of macroeconomic outcome indicators over many years. This profile was above all characterized by a combination of strong but not excessive economic growth, a favorable uh, labor market performance, and low inflation. Uh, you can see comparative figures on the handout, and I'll come back later to that in more detail. While some countries experienced over the long term slow growth, for example the UK, others with high growth rates such as Japan suffered from high rates of inflation. The peculiar German combination of strong growth and low inflation, however, was unique. So we can conclude that both from a conceptual point of view and in terms of a performance point of view, the German economy was quite distinct. But it would be wrong to assume that the German model 
um, was conceived of in one go after World War II. A number of distinct historical experiences played an important role in shaping its features, and I will briefly take you through the most important ones. The central experience dates back to the second half of the 19th century and the specific characteristics of German industrialization um, in that period. Being relatively late and starting from a situation of relative economic backwardness compared to, say, the United Kingdom, um, this industrialization faced difficult circumstances as it had to succeed in the face of competition from early industrializers. Also, this industrialization took place via the coal and steel industry, which required much more capital than the industrialization of the early 19th century, such as in Britain, uh, which industrialized via the textile industry. German industrialists thus learned to exploit economies of scale, to establish intercorporate linkages through cartels, and to rely on bank finance and participation. This influenced the industrial culture of the firm strongly into a direction of what today we would probably call stakeholder capitalism. The state contributed to the success by providing a strong infrastructure, primarily railways, but also research institutes and engineering schools that helped to secure Germany's leading role in modern scientific industries such as chemicals. Within half a century, Germany transformed itself spectacularly into one of the leading industrial powers of the world. In the German experience, what came to be known as organized capitalism, namely cooperation between companies to share developments and close links between banks and industrial companies, was thus perceived as positive. This was in marked contrast to, say, the Anglo-American view, which tended to equate only competitive markets with equilibrium and monopolistic situations with distortion. In the German view, unrestricted competition tended to be considered destructive and cartels an element of order. Add to, add to these positive experiences those of the first half of the 20th century and you have the building blocks in place to understand German policy choices after World War II. First of all, Germany, after World War I, went through a period of hyperinflation unseen until then. Have a look at the banknotes used to shop every day as their sums go up and up, from 10,000 to 500,000 to 10 million to 1 billion, just for your everyday shopping. An annual rate of inflation, I mentioned it already, of 2 billion percent in 1923. That's a figure with 12 zeros. Not only created chaos in economic life at the time, but it also expropriated all those patriotic members of the middle class that had invested their savings in government bonds in 1914 and after, and thus financed the war. See some more pictures how money became essentially worthless and was therefore um, used for other purposes. First of all, 
you had to carry it around in baskets. It was used to fire the oven um, and for children to play with, which was probably the only time when it still ex uh, exhibited some stability. And with the, uh, you probably can't see that, but I can tell you, with the accelerating inflation changing prices eventually by the hour, money simply went out of use. Here on the picture, you can see that theater, tictures, uh, theater tickets are being sold for prices ranging from two eggs for the cheaper seats to a pound of butter for the top seats. So money, to sum it up, became worthless during that period, and inflation remained the great trauma for the rest of the 1920s, so that even after the onset of the world economic crisis in 1929, and in the face of dramatically increasing unemployment, state stimulation of the economy through deficit spending was politically completely out of the question as it was associated in the public memory with hyperinflation. The Nazi dictatorship brought a period of, largely, of a largely state-run economy. Prices and wages were frozen since 1963, uh, 1936, sorry, and many goods were, were rationed to free up resources for the preparation of the war. Given the results of the war, it comes as no surprise that central planning of the economy became associated in the German national psyche with hardship and misery. After 1945, the time thus seemed ripe for a political reconstruction of economic life, which avoided both unregulated market competition and total government planning. The ideological construct that eventually was embraced, embraced in all political quarters, namely the social market economy, offered a third way between liberalism and central economic planning Soviet style. This concept had already been debated from the 1930s onwards, secretly during the dictatorship, by a group of economists and lawyers at the University of Freiburg to prepare for what they thought would be the inevitable downfall of the Nazi regime. The concept expressed the philosophical belief that market competition and social protection were not antagonistic, but mutually reinforcing. The growth dividends of a dynamic market economy, it was thought, would be sufficient to alleviate class conflict and to encourage a convergence of interest between business and labor. Furthermore, individual liberty in economic life uh, would be the best guarantor of political liberty. The competing demands of political freedom, social justice, and economic growth could, could, could thus be met. This new German ideology spelled consensus. <coughs> the godfather of the economic miracle to come was Ludwig Erhard, the first economics minister of the Federal Republic. Perpetually puffing a cigar, he became the political symbol of the concept that he enth enthusiastically supported. Prior to the Federal Republic's founding, he acted on the strength of his convictions. As the ranking German official in charge of economic policy in the British and American occupation zones, Erhard overnight and on his own initiative eliminated all wage and price controls and abolished the rationing of food and other essentials. 
With one stroke, he thus legitimated the law of demand and supply and subverted the economic controls that had grown up since the 1930s and out of sheer necessity had been continued after 1945. General Lucius Clay, outraged by, the, by this act of insubordination, pointed out to Earhart that all of the American advisers considered this to be a serious mistake. Earhart is reported to have answered, and I quote, Herr General, pay no attention to them. My own advisers tell me the same thing. Events proved Erhard right, and the successful currency reform of 1948, which introduced the Deutschmark, and after which economic development soon took off in a positive direction, became the decisive break with the past and the founding myth of the West German economic system. As we will see later, it played an active role even in the process of German unification more than 40 years later. As I said earlier, intellectual attempts to think up a new concept for the economy beyond pure liberalism um, on the one hand and the centrally planned economy on the other hand had been underway in Germany since the 1930s. The resulting concept of the social market economy combined freedom with responsibility as the Oxford historian Anthony Nichols has summarized it in the title of his book on the subject. The group mainly centered around the University of Freiburg and therefore often referred to as the Freiburg School called itself neoliberal in order to distinguish itself and its new approach from that of the old pure liberalism. Nowadays, however, neoliberal has come to mean something else, exactly that old liberalism of the unrestricted market that the Freiburg School wanted to avoid. The other name that is common for the German approach is therefore perhaps better suited to characterize it, ordal liberalism, which means a combination of state-provided order combined with the working of the market mechanism. The role of the state was primarily to build a stable framework within which markets could operate to stop the market from degenerating into imperfect competition through monopolies and to be prepared to step in when market mechanisms led to socially undesirable <coughs> outcomes. Apart from these tasks, the state should abstain from intervention in the market process. In particular, it should not manipulate aggregate demand as the then-dominant Keynesian economic theory prescribed. But clever intellectual concepts alone cannot sustain an economic system. Institutions are needed for that, and I will explain the most important ones uh, in the following part of my lecture. Let me start with the most fundamental institution, the basic law, the West German Constitution. Interestingly, it does not contain any articles that prescribe or even mention the social market economy. The 1950s, therefore, saw a long debate among scholars as to whether the social market economy was the only possible economic system for Germany or whether, in principle, it could be replaced by a different one. The result of that debate was that the Constitution's position on the economic order was one of neutrality, albeit a qualified neutrality. For the Constitution contains some fundamental economic rights of the individual that would, for example, be difficult to reconcile 
with a centrally planned economy and that therefore have been labeled barriers against socialism by some scholars. For example, the guarantee of property and its use for economic purposes in Article 14, the freedom of association in Article 9, or the free choice of an occupation in Article 12. On the other hand, the basic law also imposes some economic duties and restrictions, most notably in Article 14, which also states, I quote, property imposes duties. Its use should also serve the public weal, end of quote. And then there is Article 15, which in principle makes socialization possible, albeit only for prescribed purposes. Let me quote. Land, natural resources, and means of production can, for the purposes of socialization, be transferred to public ownership or other forms of collective enterprise by a statute regulating the nature and extent of compensation. This article, however, merely reflects the wish in 1949 to keep, to keep options for economic policy open. It has never gained any relevance and the statute necessary to make use of it has never been passed. But it served as a reminder that, a strong, that, there were, that there were strong weapons in principle at the state's disposal should a majority wish to use them. The social market economy is thus not rooted in the, uh, in the Constitution, but over time a number of laws have been passed that have defined more precisely an environment conducive to its operation. There are three laws that I specifically want to mention. The Cartel Law, the Bundesbank Act, and the Co-Determination Law. The Cartel Law, or more precisely the, quote, Law Against Restrictions of Competition, can be seen as the centerpiece of the concept of the social market economy and a break with the German tradition of accepting cartels. But its implementation also showed the difficulty of putting the theoretical principles of the Freiburg School into political practice, even when public acceptance of them was arguably at an all-time high. Ludwig Erhard let it be known that he regarded tough regulations to prevent any limitation of competition as of central importance. He wrote in 1949 that, and I quote, interference with the free workings of competition through planning and controls is no less deplorable and harmful when it is exercised on the part of the entrepreneurs than when it is exercised by the state. All market agreements, and especially those concerned with prices, are in the last analysis directed towards imposing a limitation of some kind on the free operation of competition." End of quote. But the legislation took most of the 1950s to emerge, and when it did so in 1957, it was substantially watered down compared to the high principles of the auto-liberal economic school. One reason was that many in Erhard's own party, the CDU, wanted to cooperate with business associations and their pressure groups, whom they regarded as their constituency. These groups, however, were opposed to the original version of the law, as were Erhard's colleagues in the transport, postal, and finance ministries who wanted to see exemptions in the law for whole sectors um, of the economy. And then there were the more nationalist elements in the CDU 
and their coalition partners on the political right who considered economic cartels a source of strength not to be done away with. But Erhard finally managed to get the law onto the statute books and it represented a breakthrough in German business practice. It clearly announced that cartels were an exceptional and unsatisfactory method of regulating markets and made clear the central role of competition and the price mechanism. <coughs> Importantly, it established a watchdog body, the Federal Cartel Office, which would not only police the workings of the Act uh, with regard to cartels, but also act against unhealthy concentrations of economic power or tendencies towards monopoly. It acted decidedly against concentrations of economic power that were seen as dangerous um, for the competition over the decades to follow. And from 1973 onwards, it also controlled business mergers in that respect. A couple of years ago, for example, it banned the, the sale of large parts of Deutsche Telekom's TV cable network to the US media conglomerate Liber uh, Liberty on the grounds that if the sale went through, Liberty would gain a monopoly in some regions and that would reduce competition. A second central institution that was created in the same year, 1957, was the Bundesbank. It was the core institution of the Bundesbank Act, which had also taken until the late 1950s to be finally passed by the Bundestag. It confirmed the German central bank's independence from government influence that was to give it such an important role in the decades to follow. It has to be stressed, however, that this independence did not originate with German politicians. It were the occupying powers that in the spring of 1948 created a provisional central bank and granted it operational independence. The Bundesbank managed to create enormous public support for its policies in the German population, which made it practically immune from criticisms from the government of the day. There were many fights between the central bank on the one hand and var various chancellors and ministers of economics on the other over the right conduct of monetary policy, starting with Adenauer in the late 1950s and going up to Weigel and Kohl in the mid-1990s after German unification. Usually, the politicians would demand an easing of monetary conditions in order to help economic recovery or prevent economic slowdown. But the Bundesbank would refuse it to keep inflation in check. The strength of the Bundesbank, and you must imagine that its independence was only laid down in a simple law but no government ever dared to suggest that it be changed and the central bank be made to follow directions from the government. The strength of the Bundesbank has often been explained by the fact that after seeing its currency ruined by the state twice in 30 years, the German population longed for fundamental change. And deliver that change the Bundesbank did. As I mentioned earlier, and as you can see from the handout, Germany became the champion of price stability in the world, consistently displaying the or one of the lowest rates of inflation over the last decades. The message that implied was not lost on other countries. Won over by the stellar low inflation record of the Bundesbank, many other countries have realized that 
Direct government influence on the conduct of monetary policy may do more harm than good. As a consequence, this has led many other countries to adopt the Bundesbank model of an independent central bank. The new European Central Bank, which governs the single European currency, the Euro, has been modeled on the Bundesbank as well. So, to sum it up, the concept of an independent central bank has been the most successful ingredient of the social market economy and also a successful export article as well. Lastly, let me say a word about the industrial relations and the role of the employers' associations and trade unions. For the success of the social market economy is by far not only owed to state institutions, however ingeniously they may be constructed. Rather, the German state explicitly acknowledges the important role especially trade unions and employers' associations play. Both are seen not as antagonists in terms of class struggles, but as partners. Indeed, the German word for unions and employers is Tarifpartner, which cannot really be translated into English because here the tradition is historically one of confrontation rather than cooperation. But you may note that the word partner is included here. As a consequence, the German state has traditionally abstained from any intervention in the collective bargaining process. Attempts at incomes policies or wages and price stops, like in the UK or the US in the 1960s and 1970s, to counter inflation were never made in Germany. On the other hand, the state is not completely absent from the, from the sector. There are strict legal rules which govern, for example, strikes and lockouts, um, which are thus not easily available weapons for both parties in a wage struggle. Both sides have to obey certain rules, all of which aim at moderation. Lockouts, for example, have to be proportional to the number of workers who are on strike. Strikes are only admissible for wage disputes, not for political purposes. The public wheel must not be willfully endangered. Firemen, for example, are not allowed to strike in Germany. And trade unions have a monopoly on strikes, which makes wildcat strikes of small groups unlikely as they would be liable for any damages. Judging from the amount of labor unrest in Germany, these rules seem to have worked quite well. German strike rates have consistently been among the lowest among the industrialized countries, second only to those of Switzerland. But legal regulation of conflict is not the only reason for that. Organizational features help as well. For both the trade union and the employer side are characterized by relatively centralized organization with influential peak associations. And on the trade union side, the number of unions is small and they are organized according to industry. As a result, management in any given firm will usually only have to deal with one trade union and competition between trade unions for members or for better pay deals, which in other countries has often led to spiraling wage costs with ensuing inflation does not take place. But it would be wrong to assume that relations among the tariff partner 
are primarily characterized by cozy harmony. They are certainly not. From time to time, fierce and long confrontations have taken place. Taken together, however, the formula of social partnership or Sozialpartnerschaft is probably correct. Both sides realize that they depend on each other and act accordingly, at least in the medium and long run. They share responsibility in a number of such of the parapublic institutions that I talked about three weeks ago, such as the Federal Labor Office, which is operated under the principle of self-government, Selbstverwaltung, by the trade unions and the employers. Trade unions also get inside knowledge about companies and their problems through the institution of co-determination. In German, it's Mitbestimmung, first put into law in 1952. Co-determination is complex and varies according to economic sector and company size, but generally speaking, one can say that it grants important rights to works councils, especially in the areas of social matters and personnel management. In big companies, trade union representatives get seats on supervisory boards and not just a token seat, but between a third and half of the seats. This ensures that management gets considerable input for its decisions from the employee side, and on the other hand, that the implementation of decisions is often helped by the trade unions. The institution of co-determination, although it is undoubtedly central to the German model, remains a contested one. While its supporters give it a lot of credit for the smooth operation of the German high-skill, high-quality and high-wage economy, with its high levels of investment, not least in constant worker training and retraining, its critics point to the high costs, the mediocre economic performance over the last 25 years, and the danger of a coalition of insiders against the outsiders, for example, those who look for work, namely the unemployed. Let me come to the last part of my lecture and um, take a look at the, the question of economic performance of the social market economy. While the system is complicated enough to engender interest in economists, political scientists, and industrial sociologists in its own right, its primary attraction, of course, was its performance record, if you remember the quotes from The Economist at the beginning of the lecture. Let's therefore have a look at some of the main macroeconomic indicators that are normally used to assess economic performance uh, on the level of the nation state, and you can find the data on the um, backside of your handout. First, a look at um, growth rates of GDP. As you can see, um, growth rates were very high until the mid-1960s, on average around 7% a year. These were the years of the German economic miracle, and they were clearly years of catch-up after the war. They soon returned to normal, and you can see from the table that over the long run, German economic growth is not much different from that of other OECD countries after 1960. The high rates of growth in the 1950s helped to bring down the initially very high rate of unemployment to 2 to 3% within 10 years. This is remarkable because the influx of refugees from the GDR 
continued to swell the ranks of the West German labor force during that time. The 1960s were even a period of labor shortage, and the so-called guest workers were brought in from countries like Italy, Yugoslavia, and above all, Turkey. From the mid-1970s, labor market performance became worse as each recession caused a hike in the unemployment rate that the ensuing upswing failed to re reverse. While worse than its past performance, Germany still fares quite well compared with other countries, as you can see on the table, at least in the 1970s and 1980s. In the 1990s, the shock of unification with an economically bankrupt GDR forces the rate of unemployment up even further. <coughs> and you can see three lines in the figure. Um, one that is the, uh, the, the first and the highest one is the East German rate. Uh, then there is the All German rate and then the West German rate. And you can see from that that unemployment comes not only from the East. The West German rate of unemployment is also at a comparative all-time high. It is quite clear that Germany has problems here. If over, the long, uh, time, if over time the German performance has declined in terms of the labor market, it remained constantly very good with respect to price stability. As you can see on the graph, uh, German inflation peaked with 7% in 1974, much lower than other countries, as you can see from the table. The German rate of inflation was consistently significantly lower than that of the UK, the US, or the average of the OECD countries. What you can also see in the comparative table are two other characteristics of the German economy. Compared to other countries, Germany has persistently run a balance of trade surplus and it has a large manufacturing <coughs> sector. Both are linked. German manufacturing exports are successful the world over. Think of cars, think of machine tools. However, this also means that the German economy is particularly sensitive to economic developments abroad. A slowdown in demand in major other countries will quickly result in a German economic downturn. You could see that, for example, a couple of years ago in 2002, when the recession in the United States, which are a major market for German exporters, caused a severe downturn in Germany. Let me come to the conclusion of my lecture today and say that any assessment of the merits of the German model of the social market economy must take into account its long-term performance. Current problems are influenced substantially by the economic consequences of German unification and the attempt to rebuild a market economy in East Germany. The German economy is doing quite well at the moment. Growth is healthy, unemployment is down by more than half a million compared to a year ago, and the Maastricht deficit criterion of 3%, which had been violated for four years in a row, is being comfortably met, and there is even talk of a balanced budget by 2009. But the consequences of German unification will continue to require massive fiscal transfers from West Germany to East Germany, overall of many, many billion euros. 
While some results are encouraging, productivity per person employed in East Germany, for example, has doubled in the 1990s, there is still a considerable gap. That productivity in 1999 was still only two-thirds of that in West Germany. An initial mistake at the time of unification was to think that the economic miracle of the West in the 1950s could be repeated in the East. The government in 1990, at the time of unification, even planned an advertising campaign in which a cartoon version of Ludwig Erhard was to explain the principles of the social market economy to his little dog. Fortunately, somebody realized in time that being depicted as lap dogs would be highly offensive to the East German citizens and the campaign was scrapped before it was started. That brings me to, today's lecture, to the end of today's lecture and next week um, I'll talk about the process and the effects of German unification, a particularly fascinating episode and I hope a fitting finale for this lecture series. Thank you.